0: We may have all come to this book at some point and read through it, including what we will see today in chapter 3 and pondered it and considered it. But I dare say, Father, that because Your Word is living and active, because it reflects the wisdom of an all-knowing, all-powerful God, we can also be sure that no matter how many times we have read it, Father, we have not fully grasped all that You have for us in the text. Perhaps today, Father, You would be Gracious to bless us with yet more understanding, with a greater perspective. We come with that intention and that desire. I come prepared, Father, in the hope that you would teach through me. And I know others here today have come in the hope that as the teacher, you would make clear what it is they should know. Bring us to this right understanding, Father, so that we may live in the knowledge of the truth and glorify you through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give our full attention beginning in verse 7 to where we left off and what happens next in the course of this event. I did read last week, chapter 3, verse 7, but only touched it briefly since it came at the end. So let's begin there again and go further from that point. I'll read again chapter 3, verse 7. The text says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The text says they knew they were naked and they made effort to clothe themselves. So what is the connection here between the sinfulness they now share because of their actions in the garden and this sudden need to clothe themselves where before they had no need? It'd be understandable if we assume just looking at the text that our universal desire to clothe ourselves everywhere you go in the world, people wear clothing to some degree that that was merely just cultural practice, a learned trait from culture. That would be a natural thing to assume. But the Bible here tells us otherwise. It says that the practice of covering ourselves came as an instant result of sin and not as some cultural practice. Remember, the simple definition of sin is just law-breaking. Law-breaking. So when we sin, we've broken a law, and in doing so, we offend the lawgiver, whoever that is, whether it's the state of Texas whether it's the federal government or in this case, of course, whether it is God himself in his law. That lawgiver promised to these two people that when they ate of the fruit, they would be due a penalty for that sin, the penalty being spiritual death. So as they ate it, they experienced some kind of spiritual change as promised. And that change left them feeling instantly different about themselves and about their relationship with God. I don't think they could have articulated it it doesn't come that way. It's a, it's a spiritual change. It takes time for the mind to catch up to that and understand it and appreciate it. So in this initial moment, they are reacting instinctively to something that has changed internally because of their sin. They now have shame, something the world around us doesn't have enough of anymore. They now have shame, a feeling that they have a reason to hide or conceal themselves because they have sinned. And that feeling always accompanies law-breaking, at least... As long as we have a conscience. At least until we sear or push down and and put to an end a conscience that God has given us so that we might feel shame and understand instinctively that we have an unholiness before God because of our shame, uh, because of our mistakes and our sin. Now, in response to that feeling of shame, what do they do? They cover themselves physically. Isn't that interesting? They have a spiritual change, but the reaction they have to that moment is one of trying to change or deal with. The physical, because of a change in the spiritual. Here you see a dilemma associated with mankind's spiritual defect, with our sinful nature. Our physical action, in this case their physical action, was disobeying God by eating the fruit. Our physical actions are sin of various other kinds. But those physical actions, those physical things we do that constitute sin, produce spiritual change, spiritual impact. They make us feel shameful. They make us feel guilty or convicted if the Spirit is there working with us. In their case, it also led to the spiritual condemnation of death, which we share. But that spiritual change had a reciprocal effect on the physical. It led them to feel shameful and then try to cover that shame in the physical. But here's the dilemma. Now that we are fallen, now that we are already spiritually fallen and shameful, we cannot fix the spiritual defect through physical action. It was a physical act that led to the spiritual fall. But there is no solution that works backwards. I cannot now do something physical to reverse what has been done spiritually. That's the dilemma. You can't work your way out of a fallen nature. So then in verse 8, the next phase of the story, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Now, let's stop and understand what they're doing here in small steps. First, we hear that they heard God approaching in the garden. What do you think they actually heard? Is God, for example, truly walking? Is it, is it the sound of footsteps through the garden that they, they hear? Well, the word here for walk in Hebrew is halak. And what halak literally means is to go in or to access or to enter in. It doesn't mean walk. It means to enter in. So what the text is literally saying in Hebrew is God entered the garden, which means as spirit, we know God is all spirit. He doesn't have a physical body until the moment he was incarnate through his son. There was no physical side to God. It was all spirit. And so knowing that and knowing that the text itself just says enter, it doesn't say walk, The the best way to understand this moment is that God is making his presence known to the man and the woman in the garden as he enters into their presence. He's making himself known by creating noise of some kind so that they would hear him approach. Now, Moses adds here in the text that he enters in the cool of the day. Kind of an odd detail, isn't it? Why does he choose to mention that? Well, here again, the language is part of the issue here. The word for cool in Hebrew is ruach. It's the word for spirit or breath or wind. If you put the two together, you get a sense here that what God is doing as spirit is moving his presence into the garden, but doing so in such a way that they hear the rustling sound of wind or they hear the movement of the trees or plants in response to God's entering something that they can detect so that they would know he's coming in and not necessarily just him physically walking. That's not probably the right way to see it. What's most important here is the fact that He made His presence known. He wanted to be heard. He wanted them to have a heads up. He was coming into the garden. Why would God need them to know that? Why does He want His presence known? Well, look what they do, and it gives you a bit of an answer to that question. Look what they do when they do hear Him. They hide. They hide themselves from God. So that begs the question, why are they hiding? Well, we've already said their sin gave them reason to fear God. They have offended the lawgiver... And understand it is a spiritual change that has resulted now in them instinctively behaving differently. It does not require that they had an opportunity to sit and contemplate sin, understand all the doctrinal implications and all the the relationship changes that must result, and to have considered their response and thought, you know, next time we see God, we should hide. No. I mean, clearly that's not even in the text. It is literally instinctive. They have had a change in the spiritual that leads them to feel different, not so much yet think different. So, if we understand that they have instinctively hidden themselves because they've offended this lawgiver and they know that without even consciously understanding it, perhaps, then we understand better why God would have made noise. It's grace, it's unmerited favor on God's part to make sure they would have an opportunity to shield themselves. God understands what will happen when they encounter sin for the first time. He knows what kind of change will take place in their spirit. He's already told them that. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. By death, we understood He meant the spiritual death of sin. And since He knows that, and being omniscient, He knows they've already eaten, He is understanding that if He walks into their presence unannounced, then He will have no choice but to judge their sin in that moment. To come face to face with a holy, perfectly just and righteous God while still in a state of sin means instantly eternal judgment or death. Because God is compelled by His own perfect nature to judge sin and not ignore it. We as parents, for example, in our imperfect state as parents, may at times turn a blind eye to our children's mistakes and choose not to react with the kind of perfect measured justice that their mistakes would require. And we do so for various reasons, and not the least of which, of course, is a kind of misplaced compassion. But if we were truly perfect as, ju- as a judge in the way God is, then every mistake would be met with a corresponding and appropriate punishment without exception. And that's the nature of the God we serve. In Exodus 33, we hear this about God. He says to Moses in 33:19, he says... I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. This is, as you may remember, when Moses was asking to see the glory of God. He says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. No man. So God is not intent on destroying the man, the, the man and the woman, the beginnings of mankind, which he purposed to create. And if he were to come into the garden unannounced and they were to be caught off guard and to see him in their state of sinfulness, that's it for humanity. Judgment would have to ensue. His own perfect nature binds him to doing so. But to make sure they hide so that there is grace and opportunity for them to, to recover from this moment in due course of time, God makes noise as he enters and they do what he knew they would do instinctively. They hide. And then next God calls out for them. This is an interesting thing when you think about it, because if he's got this much understanding to know to even make noise in the first place so that they will hide, then why does he have to ask the question, where are you? Clearly, God knows where they are. Wouldn't you agree? Clearly, he's not surprised by any of this. So why is he asking the question? Why does God generally ask questions when there's nothing he doesn't already know? Would a, would a question ever come out of God's mouth? Well, let me ask you as a parent. Have you ever asked your child a question when you already know the answer? All the time. What is the point then in doing that? My wife is and I have a practice in our own home, which my wife's much better at this, I, uh, I'll tell you up front. Um, but... Our conversations with our kids are usually a series of questions at which they know exactly where we're going and we know that they know where we're going and yet we go through the game every time. Who left the milk out? Where do we put milk when it's done? I don't know. Same situation. Our asking of questions and God's asking of questions are really for the same purpose in this case. What is that purpose? It's an opportunity for repentance. It's grace. It's an opportunity for them to admit... Their guilt, to own up to it. They had an opportunity to answer back to the question, Where are you? with a confession of sorts, an explanation. Now, the real question is Did Adam take that opportunity? Did Adam and woman take that opportunity? Look at verse 10. He said, This is Adam. I heard you, I'm sorry, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God says, where are you? And Adam answers a different question. Did you notice that? The question was, where are you? But look, the answer is not to the question, where are you? He answers a different question. What he essentially answers is a question of, why are you hiding? That's really the one that Adam answers. He says, I was afraid. Now, you see here how fear of the Lord comes upon a person, upon a man in this case, as a result of shame, which is the product of sin. So sin led to a state of vulnerability or debt to the lawgiver, a shamefulness, and that now leads to a fear when we know we have the possibility of coming into the presence of the lawgiver. I think that's one of the reasons why angels, as they appear to men, strike fear into the hearts of men. They're not fallen, they have no sin of their own, and they are an ambassador, a messenger from a holy and just God. They put us that much closer to Him, And their natural appearance may be fearful as well, but I think there's something spiritual in there as well, that we have come a little closer to the holiness of God through this emissary, through this proxy, and it starts to well up in us that instinctive fear of what an unholy life will experience in the presence of a holy God. Adam explains he was fearful by saying, because I was naked. That's even more confusing, because he's been naked from the beginning. That's not new. What's new is a fear of God in light of his nakedness. That's what's new. Only now is he starting to be bothered by his appearance before God being naked. And if you want to add another irony, in reality, he's not even naked anymore. He's wearing fig leaf shorts now. So he's not really naked like he was, but he now is aware of his nakedness in a way that he is afraid to be with God because he's partially naked. What a strange set of affairs here. Here you have visible proof, visible meaning now in the way he is covering himself, we see visible proof of his spiritual change leading to physical change. And I will tell you from my own experience, but you don't need to rely on mine, certainly you know this yourself and the scriptures talk about it at length, this relationship between a spiritual debt sin, in other words, and a corresponding physical impact, it didn't end in the garden. And it doesn't only apply to unbelievers. To the extent we as believers continue to pursue sin against our best judgment and the Spirit's counsel and the, and the Word of God, we will see physical impacts of that. Paul talks about it at length. It may be an immediate consequential effect of the sin, what we did actually hurt us, or it might come over time in the way it debilitates us and causes us to harden against the word of God or against the counsel of the spirit to become sort of emboldened around our sinful living. It could have consequences through relationships. It can have God himself may even bring a specific consequence against us in the way he does at times in the past through what we see in the testimony of various men of the Old Testament or even into the New Testament, men who consciously went against God's word. And the result of that was God pronounced a judgment against them in some specific sense, a physical malady, or maybe even death itself, physical death, as a penalty for what they did. I'm just pointing out what I hope is obvious to anyone who studies their Bible. You cannot expect to sin repeatedly and, and, without consequ- and, and um, indiscriminately without expecting that sooner or later that will have a reciprocal impact on our physical state of being, our mind, our, our, our emotions, our physical being. What goes round comes round, as some would say. So he feels naked before God, and he says he's afraid. Adam here has tried to solve his own problem, in a sense. When he strapped those shorts on, whatever he put on, the, the text says he made loin coverings. That's why you always see the pictures with the little fig leaf in the strategic location. That's because the text itself refers to it as loin coverings. So he didn't try to make enough to cover his whole body. He probably didn't have the time or the ability, but he did his best. But he's trying to solve a spiritual problem with a physical remedy. That if it were possible, the shame he feels for the sin he's committed is now being covered, he thinks or hopes, by this physical covering. But it's not working. The proof of that, he still hid. If it had been possible for, his own work, for the work of his own hands in creating this covering to have sufficed in dealing with his shame, then when God entered, he wouldn't have had to hide, would he? He would have felt perfectly fine as he was. But no, it didn't work. It didn't work. God asks, who told you that you were naked? When he says here, who told you, told is, now God, it means to make known or declared or make conspicuous. Who made it known to you? The real question God's asking here, how did you come to know of your nakedness? What was the source, in other words, of the knowledge that you now have? And of course, we know the answer to that, right? The knowledge came from the knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's where this knowledge came from that he's now walking around with, this awareness. His second question really clarifies, God's second question clarifies his meaning. He says, Have you done as I commanded you not to do? You see, when God said, Who told you? He was alluding to the tree. And he answers his own question by saying, Was it the tree? Was it the tree that gave you this knowledge? Or another way to say it is, Did you disobey me? Did you sin? You broke the only rule I gave you. Parents, here's your proof. You can give your kids only one rule, and they'll still break it. Disobedient kids are not a result of too many rules. They ate from this tree. Now, in these questions, from top to bottom, you see a second opportunity here for Adam to repent and confess. The first one was, where are you? That didn't go so well. The second one was, who gave you the knowledge? Did you eat from the tree? Does God know that? That's like me asking who left the milk out when I haven't had cereal. I know it's not me. Alright, what I'm waiting for is, sorry, Dad. I know I shouldn't have done that. I thought, I, sh- I wasn't thinking. But if I get a, well, I know it wasn't me, it must have been someone snuck in our house last night and took the milk out just to get me in trouble, then we're back to square one. They know they're going to get another question. In those questions, as he's given an opportunity to repent and confess a second time, he blows it a second time. His response here is classic. In fact, it needs virtually no commentary. Verse 12, the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So Adam here names the source of his knowledge. Remember, the question effectively got to that issue. How did you come to know? Where did you get the knowledge? Did you eat of the tree? Is that how you came to know? His answer is, it was the woman. And just to clarify, Adam adds, you know, the one you gave me. That one. Among all the women that are here, it was that one. Now look, throughout the history of mankind, husbands have said some pretty stupid things concerning their wives, but Adam still holds the record, in my opinion. He's at the top of the, of the record books with this one. In one sentence, he managed to insult not only his wife, but God as well. He points to the woman in in this process of of trying to explain to God what happened. And he points to the woman and he not only blames her, but then obliquely he blames God for giving her to him. Since woman was God's gift, you know, he tries to hold that against God. That is such classic shifting of blame. And we see it for what it is, don't we? I would challenge us all to consider how often we've done virtually the same thing in a moment, forgetting of how obvious it looks to somebody else when we do it. Adam is at fault, but he looks for someone else here to blame for his mistake. At first, he blames the woman. So the blame for the woman is, she gave me the fruit. Never would have eaten it if she hadn't given it to me. That stands to reason, right? I can't eat it if I don't have it. She gave it to me. Must be her fault. And then, secondly, if there hadn't been any woman, well, then we know I wouldn't have had any opportunity to eat because there'd have been no one there to hand it to me. So God, what do we say about that? You gave me this woman. Finally, At the very end of that little chain of thought, he sticks himself in there. He says, oh, yeah, and I ate it. I ate it. Trying to minimize his own role here. It's stuck at the end. It's almost like a footnote to the whole experience. There was this woman. You gave her to me. And oh, yeah, then I ate. What he doesn't do, obviously, is he doesn't repent. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He doesn't look to God to, in any sense, um, adjust the penalty. Remember, he has heard already that there is a penalty for doing this, and the penalty is spiritual death. He has, he, he has absolutely nothing to say about that. He is stuck in denial. We understand what this means. We know, obviously, from reading and from the history of mankind since Adam, we understand what it means to be in spiritual death. All the misery, all the, the heartache, all of the hor- heinous things that men do to one another as a result of sin that has come about because of this one moment. And so we look at this and we think, why isn't Adam falling on his face, pleading with God in some way, hoping that what will come next can be avoided. And he's too busy trying to deflect and and put blame on someone else, stuck in denial. Well, God moves down the chain here of events. He he goes down to the next person in line. He talks to the woman here next. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, he asks simply, what have you done? To the woman, he says, what have you done? Now, unlike Adam, woman's response here is largely truthful. It's largely accurate. First, she says she was deceived. Last week, we looked at Scripture's commentary with respect to this moment, and we saw how Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy that this was exactly what happened. She was, in fact, deceived. Her actions were the result of the enemy convincing her that what was false was true. And she acted thinking she was acting in some way in accordance with the truth. But then she says very quickly, I ate. And she admits her actions. Now, I realize she uses the same words as Adam, but unlike Adam, she had a legitimate reason to put her actions at the end of the sentence because the first part, the deception, was in fact the direct and proximate cause of the latter. She ate because she was deceived. That is in fact a truthful statement. It is not a deflecting in the same way that Adam was. It's not exactly a confession. Not in the way we might like to hear it, I know. But at least it was truthful without an apparent attempt to deflect or to avoid blame. Remember, the scriptures say deception for her because she was an innocent. She did not know good and evil. Therefore, deception was a legitimate reason for her to do what she did. Legitimate in the sense that it absolves her from the sin that Adam is credited with. It is. Let me be clear about this. Eating of the tree was still sin, but deception was a legitimate defense. She was in fact doing the wrong thing, but by deception she would have been absolved from the guilt of that action had it only been her. That's the testimony of Scripture. That's why we say we are all of uh, the sin of one man, not of one woman. Now, the fall has happened. God knew it would happen. He expected it to happen. We've been looking at that all the way through the first two chapters of the the book of Genesis. We see even in the way he created the world that he created it with details that anticipated the fall. But he's also told these two people that they should multiply and fill the earth. Well, that gives God a dilemma then at this point. Because now that they've sinned, now that they carry in themselves a fallen nature... God specified that the way in which reproduction would take place among his creatures, to include man, was that we would reproduce after our own kind. We'll talk more today in the discussion about evolution, about what it means to reproduce only after your own kind, as God's word has decreed. But for today, in this context, what it tells us is who you are is what you make. Before they fell, they would have been reproducing of that kind, the innocent nature that they had. They would have been reproducing more innocence. But now, in a fallen state, spiritually, remember, the reproduction process doesn't just result in a new physical body being born. If it breathes and it lives, then it has a spirit as well. And the spirit nature that comes will also be like the parent, because we reproduce after our own kind. So when they have children... Now that they are fallen, their children will come into the world bearing all the marks of that sinful choice. They will be equally fallen, equally sinful. Understand, the adage you may have heard before is absolutely true. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. We are not made to be sinful because we did something wrong. We are doing things wrong because we were born into the world as a sinner with a sinful nature, with the nature that Adam and woman created by their disobedience. And if God allows the plan to play out from this point of view, Adam and woman reproducing sinful people throughout the corridors of history, all of them born in the same likeness as these two, he is putting the world on a course to fill it with sin and disobedience, is he not? But of course he knew this would happen. And then, above all of that, we have this understanding, this mandate that God must judge sin. Sooner or later. And when he pronounces judgment on sin, he must demand the right penalty, the just penalty. He cannot lessen the sentence because of some desire to be nice. I mean, that's not just. It's imperfect. He can't do that. The penalty for sin is eternal death, eternal separation. So here's his dilemma. How does he maintain relationship with a creation that is now destined to always be fallen and reproduce after that kind? It's not as though he can choose a different penalty. It's not as though he can ignore it. So God begins to respond in a way that will address this dilemma. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and your and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Very important verses. I'm sure many of us have looked at them at times past. Let's try to look at them again with new eyes. God is going to work backward here as he addresses all the culpable parties involved in this terrible moment. He works backwards in the sense that he's going to end with Adam, who we know is credited with our sin today. But he starts at the other end of the chain with the serpent. Now as he moves through these players at times along the way he is going to pronounce curses or a curse here and there. The word in Hebrew for curse is arar. It's used 70 times in the Old Testament. It always means the same thing. It always means divine judgment. A condemnation from God. Let me give you one example out of Scripture different than this one just so I can show you the context. In Jeremiah's book, Jeremiah 17, verse 5, one verse, this is what the Lord says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now, from that simple verse, the context is utterly clear. He's talking about the one who would trust in his own works rather than in faith. And to that one, God says, you're going to be cursed. The sense is always of damnation. To put it bluntly, going to hell. When God pronounces a curse, it is a permanent, irreversible judgment of going to hell. If somebody or something receives a curse from God, there is no recovery. It is not a partial sentence. It's not just meaning they're going to have a bad day. It means their eternal destiny has been set and will never change. So the word in Scripture is never used in some kind of offhanded sense, some light sense. It only has one meaning, and it is always that meaning. I say that because I want you and I, we need to do this together, of course. We need to look and take special note of where God pronounces curses in these verses. I'm almost certain that, at least for some of us in here, we have either remembered it wrong or maybe been taught wrongly about what and who God curses. Knowing the meaning of the word gives special importance to seeing where it's used. First, God speaks to the snake here, the serpent. Now, in the two verses I read, he actually talks to two different players here. In verse 14, he's talking to the literal animal, the snake, the physical snake that was in the garden. But in verse 15, he transitions to talking to Satan, who, as you remember from earlier weeks, is indwelling The snake, just as in the Gospels, when we see demons indwelling pigs, remember, and running off the 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 cliff and into the sea. I mean, animals can be indwelled by the enemy and his demons just as much as people at times can be. So here we see that example of God speaking first to the animal and then secondly to Satan who indwelled the animal. So let's begin with the animal in verse 14. God says, because you have done this now, let's understand that in the context of the animal. What has the animal actually done? Well, truthfully, he's just been an unwitting participant in this act of deception. That is still participation, and therefore he has, quote, done something, and it's only in that sense, though, as God is talking to the animal, that because it was a part of this process, it now has this result. Cursed are you, he says, more than all cattle and beasts, and on your belly you will go eating dust. Now, remember, a curse is a permanent state of judgment, permanent. Clearly, we know he's talking about the snake here. By that, I mean the host animal, not Satan, because he's describing physical changes to the way the animal itself exists. That's not, uh, that wouldn't make any sense if he was talking about Satan himself. He's talking here about a snake. It loses, apparently, the ability to move upright, where before it had it, now it doesn't. Maybe that's because it had legs and the legs are now taken away. That's possible. There are, even today in some species of snake, evidence of small vestigial limbs that are no longer apparent, but in the skeletal structure we can see where there used to be perhaps arms and legs. Of course, you know what evolutionists run to as they look at those pictures, right? Whatever was then, now the snake is going to stay on its belly and put its face in the dust. It says the the animal will eat dust. Does that really happen? Well, no. But in the Hebrew, this isn't meant in that way. It's a Hebrew figure of speech. It's an idiom. And what it literally means is having one's face in the dirt as a sign of shame. You know how you say someone, I'm going to rub your face in it? It's that idea being communicated here, that the snake would be in an ignominious state of being, on the ground, face in the dirt, as if someone was being placed there, prostrate, in a shameful position. That's the permanent state of this animal, from the way God has changed the way it exists. Interestingly, if we jump all the way to the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, after which much of... What God is doing here will start to be restored. One thing that does not change is the snake. In Isaiah 65, 25, we hear this. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. So God removes the predator-prey relationship that today exists between animals. The lion will eat straw like the ox. There will no longer be animal death because animals won't be eating each other. He'll be removing the death of, of animals from the world. And then he says and dust will be the serpent's food. Now, why did he think to mention the animal? If it's not changing, why mention it? Except to highlight the fact that the earlier curse is never to change. It's a permanent change for the animal. Then that verse ends by saying, they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So it confirms for us that a curse is a one-way trip. And for this animal, what God said to it was, I'm changing the physical nature of your existence forevermore. Now, you may be wondering at this point, why would God curse the snake? Poor thing. It's just an animal. Satan indwelled it. It's not like the animal had anything really to do with it, and certainly it couldn't have uh, stopped it. I mean, it was just a host. Well, it is not guilt by association, if that's what you're wondering. God is changing the snake's appearance and its behavior here as a memorial of this seminal event in human history. Remember, God has complete authority and control over his creation. And his reaction here to make it any way he wishes in response to the sin is simply his prerogative as God. There's no good or bad about it. He can, he can make his pottery any way he wants. And it makes no difference to the snake. If you're having any feeling of guilt or, 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 or feeling a little badly for the snake, it doesn't know. Trust me. It doesn't realize that it used to stand upright. It didn't care when it changed. It's just an animal. The point is, God has taken this animal and changed its appearance for you and I. That forevermore, there's a permanent reminder of how this whole process started. Now, verse 15, he moves, as I said, to Satan. We know he's talking here about Satan and not the snake because of what he says. He says, I'm going to put enmity, a permanent kind of disagreement, the lack of any agreement is what enmity really means, between snake and the woman. Now, that makes no sense if you're talking about just physical animals. This is not to say that suddenly women and snakes can never get along. I mean, yeah, a lot of women don't like snakes, but there are some who do, and there's some men who don't like snakes for that matter. So, it's not a perfect rule. If this was truly a decree from the Word of God, then we'd never see an exception to it. It doesn't mean the physical animal and women generally hating one another. The enmity here is between woman and Satan, and then more specifically her seed and his seed. Now, the entity here is not just between Adam's wife, that one woman who lived on that one day, and Satan in the garden. It's from what they represent. That's the reference here to seed. The serpent represents Satan. The seed of Satan is Satan and all his offspring throughout the corridors of history, throughout time. Who are the seed of Satan? sounds like a movie, doesn't it? Who are they? Well, the Bible tells us they are the corrupted, sinful children that were produced by Satan's deception in the garden and who belong to him. What we're talking about here is every unbeliever who's ever lived. They are the seed of Satan. They are the product of Satan's deception. For the fact that Satan did what he did, we have sin in the world, unbelief coming out as a result. And child after child after child, born as a result of the natural process of man and woman mating that always produces a sinful result. The nature will be shared with the parent. And those are the seed of Satan, the product of his work. John 8, Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees, for example. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then John writes in his letter, 1 John 3. Listen to this, 1 John 3, 8. He says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Look at how John draws that parallel. The children of God and the children of devil are obvious, he says. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, if you had a proper time to study through 1 John, we'd understand some of those absolutes in the right context. But the basic principle stands on its own. There are two kinds of people in the world. And you've heard me say this more than a few times, right? There's not... 50 different races, there's not 400 different religions, there's not 300 different nationalities. From God's point of view, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who, in their corrupt nature, are the sons of of the enemy, or those who, by faith and the rebirth of the Spirit, become sons of God. That's it. And you can divide those two groups up into subgroups all day long, but they really don't mean anything. Not in an eternal sense. And more importantly, we have to remember, we all started in the camp of the enemy when we were born. And only by faith were we transferred into the other camp. So You're not born a Christian, but you become one by faith. So here God says, I'm placing enmity between these two groups forevermore. Those who believe and those who do not, those who are of the enemy and those who are of God, will never find common ground. They will be enemies forever, spiritually. The grace in this is that Satan's attacks will no longer come against unsuspecting targets. Satan is going to battle against the army of God and God is going to be choosing and equipping his army and making them wise to the enemy's schemes and we can never lose that inheritance again and there will always be no common ground. Let that be a reminder to us when we seek to find common ground with those who God says we will not find common ground. If it is true by God's word that there will be enmity between the two camps, then it is also true that the only way you'll ever find the appearance of common ground is when you go to their ground. Because they will never come to ours but by faith. So why does God say woman's seed? I mean, you could have said the same thing to Satan and said, I will put enmity between Adam's seed and your seed. Why woman's seed? In fact, biologically speaking... Women don't have seed, not in the way this word is intended in Hebrew. The man would only have that part of the process of reproduction. Well, first, I would say this is simply a reference to woman's unique role in the childbirth process. She produces the next generation, so that is the the continuing of the seed, if you will. But it goes much deeper than that. The seed here implies something much greater to come. In fact, we have a term for this verse. This one verse in the Bible actually has a name. We call it the Proto-Evangelium which means the first gospel. This is the first clear articulation of the gospel in the scriptures. Talking in terms of order here, it's the first time it appears. The seed is a reference to a woman who is a virgin giving birth. The only way we can logically deduce what it means for a woman to have seed, if we understand that seed in the scripture refers to the the male contribution to reproduction, would be if a woman somehow was able to have a baby without a man. In other words, a virgin birth. And scholars all agree that this is a reference to the way God will ultimately bring enmity between Christ and Satan. Christ being the seed who comes from a woman at some point when God is ready. Just as Paul says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. And that is Christ. Paul himself naming the seed here refers to Christ when it's singular. So last thing in verse 15, you have, according to verse 15, each seed being bruised by the other. Now, some of your Bibles may say bruise and then strike or bruise and then hit. They may change the word in the English, but in reality, in Hebrew, it's the same word. The context drives some of our Bibles to interpret it differently. Here's what's being said. He bruises you, Satan. Who's the he bruising Satan? It's a new player. It's not woman. It can't be Satan. He didn't bruise himself. So we have this new person showing up in the text that's not actually named. Only by a pronoun do we know who he is. He will bruise Satan on the head. Satan will bruise him on the heel. We understand that this refers to the Messiah, Jesus himself. That the enmity here, the seed that I just referenced a minute ago, that comes from woman, will have an enmity with Satan. And in the course of their fight... There will be a moment in which Satan gains the upper hand or seems to and can bruise the other, the Messiah, but only on the heel. Now, think about this. No matter how hard you hit me on the heel, I don't care how sharp the knife is. I don't care how hard you hit. The chance of you killing me by hitting me on my heel is almost nil. In fact, I think about the only way it would happen is if I got infected because there's not enough blood there. There's too much skin. It's too thick. It's the safest place on my body that you can do anything you want, and probably not help hurt me in any long-term way. But if I hit you on the head, it doesn't take much, does it? It's probably the most vulnerable place on your body. That's intended in the scripture. That difference is intended to tell tell us something. When Satan gets his shot at the Messiah, it's not a death blow. Far from it. It's a glancing blow. We know that's a reference to the the time in which Christ goes to death on the cross. That happens as a result of Satan indwelling Judas and pressing the crowds through the Pharisees and orchestrating it through the Roman Empire and trying to bring about that result. The the funny thing and the ironic thing is Satan doesn't realize he's fulfilling Scripture and bringing about his own demise as a result. All he knows is, I'm putting to death my enemy. But when the time comes for the reverse to take place, it says that he, Christ, will bruise Satan on the head. That's a death blow. And that references, of course, the day in which Christ will return and put an end to Satan. And now at the very end, the last verse of the day, God turns to woman. Next week, we'll be looking at Adam and finishing the chapter. But look at verse 316. By the way, you've heard me saying here, I think more than a few times, a great study of the Bible, if you're interested, is to go through and study all the 316s of the Bible. We just saw one a minute ago, Galatians 316. Now we're looking at Genesis 316. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. One of the most misunderstood verses of the Bible. How many of you, particularly the women in here, have been taught that these are all judgments against the woman in discipline for her mistake? Let me tell you that they are none of that. That they are in each case grace from God to the woman. Because she was not culpable. He says, first, you will give birth to children in pain. Now, it's obvious here that pain is not what we want, and as such, can be seen as an act of discipline, and we understand that. But remember how Scripture talks to the believer generally. We are to accept trials and tests as an opportunity to glorify God. That when we are sent to our death, we should give thanks for the fact that we might earn a crown through a faithful witness unto death, right? that in, in truth, the Scripture's view of what pain or suffering looks like is fundamentally different than the way the world would teach it. Would, it. would you not agree? That when women are called to suffer in childbirth, we have to ask a question, to what end, before we really understand whether it is in fact meant as discipline or something greater. My suggestion, I think Scripture will back me on this, is that it becomes a memorial in the woman's body as a reminder of the pain God himself must now endure on our behalf when he goes through the process of birthing new life in Christ. That the process of new birth through the faith we have in Christ's death, it will be a painful process for God. He must now experience pain on his own part to make up for the sin of man. But the result of that pain is a glorious new birth. In John sixteen twenty one. He says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And therefore, he says, you too have grief now, speaking of the time in which he would die. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take that joy away from you. Women, let me suggest to you that it is a privilege of God's grace that you bear in your body a small reminder, a small version of what God Himself did on the cross. The painful process of birthing new life for His own glory and for the saving of mankind. And women through their birthing produce in that small moment a kind of picture of what God Himself will go through for us and did go through on the cross. Now, it is, in a sense, chastisement, because I know as a man I've never encountered the birth process, of course, and so it's easy for me to say, oh, it's no big deal, it's just a little pain. And I don't mean to minimize it in that regard. But ultimately, the woman is being told that she will be given the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah and, like all women, share in what it means for God to save us from our sin. In just the same way that a Christian who is martyred and goes to his death may choose to turn that moment into one that reflects the wisdom and the glory of God. Likewise, women, when you go into the process of birth, that is the opportunity in the moment for you, if no, if no one else, to remember what God has done on behalf of all mankind. Next, we hear women will have a desire for her husband, and he will rule over her. What a misunderstood verse. This one actually makes me a little upset because of the way it makes women see themselves in the context of marriage. The word here for desire is Teshuka, Teshuka in Hebrew. It only appears here and in the Song of Solomon. Do you know that book? Now, I'll give you one guess in what sense that word is used in the Song of Solomon. When the word desire is used in the Song of Solomon, in what sense do you think it's used? Sexual longing, right? That's the whole point of the book. It's used here and there, only two places. What's the natural way to interpret this word here? Why wouldn't you interpret it exactly the same way? What has he just given the woman? A desire for her husband. Now, some have twisted this, as you may know. What have they turned it into? They've made the word appear to mean a desire to rule over the husband. And the only reason they've come to that interpretation, in my opinion, is because of what follows in the second half of the verse. They see it as if God has created this fight. Tell you what, woman, you're going to want to rule over your husband. But get this, he's going to get the rule. Go at it. Ding, ding. Okay, break it up, break it up. Next round. That would fly in the face of Scripture, and here's why. It would make God the author of sin. It would say that God has, in the marriage, instituted a relationship in which He has created a desire in the woman to do the wrong thing and put a command over the man to try to correct it. That would make him the author of sin. At the very least, it would make him one who is tempting us to sin. And Scripture is clear on both points. He neither is the author of sin, nor does he bring us to temptation for sin. So it cannot mean that woman is being given a desire to rule over her husband. Notwithstanding the fact that some women want to do that. You just don't go here to explain it. Secondly, the natural interpretation is she just has a desire for her husband. And then in concert with that, he has a role of watching over, protecting, guiding, and leading her. Now, the critical issue here is the unity of the family in the face of sin. They're getting ready to be put outside the garden. And when they're put outside the garden, they're going to face the enemy. Forevermore, the enemy is going to be prowling in the world because he has gained dominion for a time because of his triumph in the garden. And the only defense they have is the family unit. And the strongest thing that God, the best thing God can give that unit is a strong Marriage relationship. A woman who desires her husband and a man who will take care of her. Men, women, if you were going into battle, literally in a fight on the battlefield, and you're in ranks of, of soldiers, and the enemy is facing you, quick poll, where would you rather be? At the front of that line or the back of the line? No shame, I'd want to be at the back. They got to shoot everyone before they get to me. In the garden, woman face the... The schemes of the enemy unprotected. She essentially took the front role, the front ranks. What was man doing? Who knows? But he wasn't doing anything helpful, was he? And when the time came, he just took fruit and ate. God says, we can't have this. You now are in a sinful state at the disposal of the enemy, and I have a plan to work through you and through your descendants to bring a Messiah and to bring the world to a different end. I need this family unit to hang on. Women. You're going to want your husband. You're going to want him so much that you're never going to want to leave his side. You're going to have an instinctive desire for, for your husband in such a way that the family will be bound around the love of a wife for her husband. And if you had any experience in relationships, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, to some degree, women will go after men they shouldn't go after and hold on to them long after they shouldn't have, right? Just talking stereotypically. Meanwhile, guys, they'll come and go, won't they? In many relationships, they're sort of playing two or three at the same time. I'm not saying that's biblically appropriate. I'm just saying that the nature of the two is so different. But when a husband does his role properly in the marriage, he steps to the front ranks. He takes the slings of the the arrows from the enemy. He puts that woman in the protective rear ranks where she needs to be. It's a complete reversal of what led to the problem. God producing a situation in which he is saying, essentially to the woman, you won't have to fight this battle anymore. You tried. You were deceived. Your husband let you down. Here we are. From now on, it's his job. This is grace. This is all grace to the woman because she has no culpability according to the deception that she received from the, from the enemy. Now she sinned, but she was deceived. Let's go out of the, the text with that today and let's come back in next week looking at Adam, of course, the, the, the culmination in a moment with Adam and then finish the chapter. Go with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the patience this morning as we spent quite a bit of time in your text this morning, Father. I pray that the extra time was according to your will and that the Spirit made the best use of it. But I also pray, Father, that it would be just just the beginning of our learning in this important chapter and in the book. Help us to correct along the way any number of things we may have come to believe based on assumptions or oversight, including my own, Father. Help us to arrive at a single knowledge that is yours and to put it to work. Thank you for a church, Father, and a leadership team that values your word so much that we make it so prominent in the way we worship. And I pray, Father, that it would be a shared love among all who gather here. Bring us back here in a few hours, Father, to continue in an important study that will help us know and love your word all the more. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.